Honestly, I don't know where to start. A lot has happened in the last three weeks since we last put out a podcast. So we had a, a period of quiet contemplation after the Queen's death and, and most of the populace sat down to watch the Queen's funeral, except, of course, if you were actually working in your practice or if you're one of the patients that came to see you working in your practice. It's all well and good telling us it's OK to close as long as you see the patients within the next two weeks. But if there's nowhere for them to go, then there's nowhere for them to go. Then finally, once the Queen was laid to rest and the new king was crowned, government could get back to business. And that business, of course, was breaking the economy for any sane person. That's enough to get your head around. That's enough to deal with at the moment. But for general practice, there's one more little treat. In the past week, we seem to have become a major populist theme for all the main political parties. It's almost like a horrible game of poker between the new conservative leadership and the current Labour administration. Kofi raises with a everyone can be seen in two weeks. Streeting matches it with people deserve better than a two week wait. Kofi raises again with a you can have nurses in your PCNs. Everyone knows she's bluffing because there are no extra nurses anywhere. But Starmer doesn't see the ruse. He gobbles up the bait. He raises once again with a will double the medical student places, instantly fixing all of the NHS's problems. While I look forward to seeing those new GPs in at least 10 years time, by that point we'll be so burnt out, we'll look like the blackened shell of an old Ford Cosworth on a Manchester council estate. Where will it end? Perhaps the Greens will have a cycling static bicycles to power our computers during consultations. Of course, as the BMA points out, there's no contractual obligation to try and meet the government's soundbites. And the government knows this. They acknowledge this. They're trying to harness market forces to get patients to shop around practices. They don't seem to understand that every practice is like shopping in Tesco's the week before Christmas when there's only two tills open. But this isn't what patients do. We all still want that turkey. We're just going to stand in a really long queue and moan about it. I am not a betting man and I would not put money on where the populism of general practice is going to go next. The only thing that is a safe bet is that general practice is not going anywhere. It's Friday the 30th of September 2022 and this is the Hot Topics podcast. Yes, welcome to the Hot Topics podcast from MB Medical. As always, I am Neil Tucker here to take you through the next 15 or 20 minutes or so of updates in the medical literature and news relevant to us in primary care. So we've already covered medico politics. I'm not going to talk about that anymore. What else is going on? You're probably just about to start doing the COVID vaccine clinics, except there's shortages of COVID vaccine, so you may not be which is a bit of a shame because COVID levels are on the rise once again. Also, we're being warned that this season could be a terrible one for flu based on what's happened in Australia. Although they did say that last year as well, and actually it wasn't any worse than it normally is. So you never know, perhaps because we haven't had recent lockdowns, unlike Australia, which has had quite tight measures until recently. We've just been spreading stuff all around for the last year. Maybe that might actually give us a break. Anyway, get a flu jab, kids. Ain't nobody got time for that. While I remember it's been a really busy period for MB Medical, 
I've just been putting the finishing touches to our next free Hot Topics clinic. That is on Tuesday, the 11th of October. So this is in conjunction with Crohn's Colitis UK. And we'll be talking about how we can improve diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease, particularly the role of stool tests and how we can manage flares in the community. It's at 8pm for an hour. Please do join us. Check out the website to sign up. Last weekend, we did our our new Hot Topics course as a live webinar. If you missed that, then don't worry. You can watch it on demand or you can join us for another one of the live shows that we'll be doing over the next few months. Do check out the website. Don't forget all the other courses that we're putting on as well. Things like the urgent care course, women's health, abnormal bloods, dermatology, diabetes, nurses course, mental health, more besides And if you subscribe to MB+, all of it is included. It's a bargain. And I'm just finishing off recording our Hot Topic Takeout. So that's a podcast version of the Hot Topics course. If you don't like sitting down, watching PowerPoint presentations, and you want to listen to something on your next run, when you're out for a walk, cooking dinner, whatever it may be, then do check out the website for that. There's some of last season's material already on there, but the new stuff will be coming in the next few weeks. Right, on to the medicine. And today, papers that caught my eye, there's a couple on gestational diabetes in the BMJ that we'll start with. Then there's one on the role of refumulast to help with chronic plaque psoriasis. And then we're going to round up with a really interesting paper in the New England Journal of Medicine on whether giving bronchodilators to tobacco-exposed persons with symptoms but preserved lung function is beneficial or not. Now, while I remember, I'd almost forgotten this, as we're flicking through the the journals, I come across some fantastic papers, some that are not even remotely relevant to us in primary care, but just are mind-blowing. And uh, I, I think I might start a regular thing where I try and do this and I come up with the best title from a piece of research that's come out in the last few weeks. And so this is today's one. So this was in JAMA. Um, And the title is Five-Year Outcomes in Patients with Fully Magnetically Levitated Versus Axial Flow Left Ventricular Assist Devices. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Yes, you had me at Fully Magnetically Levitated Centrifugal Flow. In case you're desperate to know more about this, this is looking at two different types of heart pump for people with severe advanced heart failure. And the one with magnets had a better prognosis at five years. If you find any papers that literally do just blow your mind, well, not literally, that'd be game over pretty much. But if you find papers that could almost blow your mind but don't kill you, then do send them to me. I'd be really interested. So you can get in touch, hottopics at mbmedical.com. So that's the email. Or you can get us on Twitter at GP Hot Topics. Do let me know. Now, on to the papers with a little bit more direct relevance to us in primary care. And we'll kick off with the BMJ and a pair of linked papers on gestational diabetes. Now, the first one was a systematic review and meta-analysis aiming to quantify the risk of cardiovascular and cerebrovascular diseases in women with a history of gestational diabetes. They looked at 15 observational studies which reported on this including 500,000 women with gestational diabetes and matching those against 8 million controls. 
Now we know that if you've had a history of gestational diabetes, that certainly increases your risk of developing type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome and chronic kidney disease in the future. But cardiovascular disease and cerebrovascular disease have been less well characterised, particularly the level of risk and the specific type of diseases that we might see. So this study found that compared to women without gestational diabetes, women with a history of gestational diabetes had a 45% increased risk of overall CVD or cerebrovascular disease with a bias more towards the cardiac side of things. So 72% increase for cardiovascular diseases and a 40% for strokes, TIAs and so forth. Every type of cardiovascular disease you can think of, so incident coronary artery diseases, MI, heart failure, angina, cardiovascular procedures, stroke and ischemic stroke, all of those were elevated. Plus, venous thromboembolism was more frequent as well with a 28% increased risk. Now, the obvious thing to think is that these increases in risk are down to the fact that a certain proportion of these women will obviously go on and develop overt diabetes. We know that increases your cardiovascular risk. But interestingly, they also found an increased risk, albeit somewhat smaller, so a 9% overall increased risk in women who had gestational diabetes but never developed overt diabetes. It's certainly a head-scratcher, and as the authors of the paper admit, the precise mechanisms of how gestational diabetes mellitus con contributed to increased risk of cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease remains unknown. They speculate that gestational diabetes maybe has acute and then persistent effects on the vasculature, with even relatively short periods of glucose intolerance contributing to endothelial changes and endothelial dysfunction, which then is exacerbated or accelerated by existing comorbidities. Now, I'm no expert in this area, unlike the authors of the paper, no doubt, but I can't help but wonder, could it not just be that these women are more likely to generally be closer to the, the diagnostic threshold for diabetes and even if their HbA1c isn't creeping over the magic 48 millimoles per mole the body doesn't know that we have artificially imposed a threshold at which we class diabetes as diabetes. All it knows is there's a lot of sugar floating around here and that's really making the inside of my arteries itch. Thankfully, the second linked paper in the BMJ has some positive news if you've had a history of gestational diabetes. So this was a prospective cohort study following US nurses, so just over 4,000 of them, for almost 30 years, examining the association between modifiable risk factors and your future risk of developing type 2 diabetes. They looked at overweight and obesity, high quality diet, regular exercise, moderate alcohol consumption and no current smoking. And they found the risk of you developing future diabetes dramatically reduced when these modifiable risk factors were optimised. Moreover, they had a definite cumulative effect. So if you had just one of them optimised, your risk went down by about 6%. But if you had all of them optimised, it went down by 92%. The authors paid special attention to overweight and obesity because, of course, we all tend to associate that with a, a being one of the biggest drivers of the development of type 2 diabetes. It's also really, really hard to lose weight. 
And so they found that even if you couldn't get your weight down, but you optimized the other four main risk factors, you reduce your risk by almost 60%. And I think that's a great message. Sure, we can tell people if you can get all of these different risk factors under control, the chance of you developing diabetes in the future is really, really very small. But rather than maybe pushing, pushing, pushing on the weight issue, as I think we have a tendency to do, driving a lot of despondency within this group when they're really struggling, they're, they're trying but failing to lose the weight, we can still be really positive and look at those other risk factors which are much more achievable, giving a really positive message that this can still make a really big difference to your future health. All right, now for something completely different. So this was a paper in JAMA and this is looking at the treatment of chronic plaque psoriasis using refumulast cream. Of course, we don't see a lot of refumulast around. It's used in patients with severe COPD that still have symptoms despite all the normal treatments. You can throw in some refumulast. Well, the specialist can. You can't throw it in. I can't throw it in. But a specialist could try it. And presumably, some patients must have started noticing that it was helping their psoriasis as well, or perhaps misunderstood how to use it and were, were just rubbing it on themselves. It may just be that there is a scientific explanation behind this. So refumulas is a phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor. It is an anti-inflammatory agent. And it would be welcome to have further options for psoriasis management, especially if it allowed us to reduce the overall steroid burden. So this, were, this paper in JAMA was two randomized controlled trials, phase three with almost 900 participants, and they compared once daily refumulast cream at 0.3% against just having a vehicle cream with no medicine in it. So after eight weeks of treatment, which was the duration of the trial, they found significant improvements in the refumulast group. So around 40% of people using that had a substantial improvement in their psoriasis. And that meant that they their skin had gone um, from whatever their original status was down to clear or almost clear. That compares against around a 6.5% improvement in the vehicle cream group. So that's a big improvement um, and it appears pretty safe. The incidence of serious adverse events was less than 1% and actually similar between both treatment and placebo groups. The next question of course will be how durable are those effects? What's the long-term efficacy? How long can you use the treatment and still get benefit for? And of course, how does it compare against other active treatments we have at the moment? I don't think you can get refumulast cream outside of research settings yet, but watch this space. I dare say it'll be hitting our shelves soon. Now, the last paper is in the New England Journal of Medicine this week. And the reason this caught my eye was I just hadn't really come across this concept before. People who have COPD but don't have COPD. So they're tobacco-exposed persons with symptoms but preserved lung function. These are the patients that come to us with a smoking history, respiratory symptoms, and then we can't prove that there's a problem. I'm sure historically there's been a tendency to be quite dismissive of these patients, maybe tell them that everything's normal. But as our understanding of COPD has improved, there's, of course, more focus on symptoms now and less on objective investigation findings. We base most of our management of COPD after diagnosis 
around the symptoms that people are getting. Therefore, it seems logical to offer this group of patients treatment even though they have preserved lung function. Except that at least in this trial, it doesn't seem to make a difference. Except that in this study, at least, it doesn't seem to make a difference. So this was a placebo-controlled, randomized controlled trial recruiting adults with a smoking history of at least 10 pack years, respiratory symptoms as defined by a COPD assessment test score of at least 10. So 10 is where it starts becoming clinically symptomatic, uh, clinically important. Uh, the score ranges from 0 up to 40. The higher you go, the worse your symptoms are and then preserved lung function on spirometry. So they've got an FEV1 FVC ratio of 0.7 or greater. They then received either a LAMA-LABA combination inhaler with indasaterol plus glycopyrrolate. Those are not easy words to say. Or placebo, both twice daily for 12 weeks. And the primary outcome was looking for at least a four-point decrease in their score on the St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire. So they used another questionnaire to follow this. This is a disease-specific instrument designed to measure impact on overall health, daily life, and perceived well-being in patients with obstructive airways disease. A change in score of four is associated with a slightly efficacious treatment. Eight units would be moderately efficacious and 12 units very efficacious. That change of four really would be indicating the minimum clinical difference that you'd be able to see through a treatment. So interestingly, over half of the treatment group had at least a four point decrease in that questionnaire score. But that was also true for those taking placebo. So the differences were 56% had an improvement in the treatment group and 59% had an improvement on in the placebo group, which is not a statistically significant difference. They also looked at lung function measurements and they found no important observable treatment effect. This finding has important clinical implications because, as the authors note in their discussion, in the absence of clinical trial data, physicians have responded to this patient population in the real world by prescribing treatments known to work for COPD or asthma. And in various trials, they found that a large number of this group are being prescribed bronchodilators. In one study, they found 43% of them were being prescribed the lack of benefit demonstrated in, in this paper suggests that for this group, prescribing at best will lead to an additional treatment burden. Uh, it might increase cost for the patient and healthcare costs for the services that are providing the medications and at worst co could cause actual harm to that person. We shouldn't forget that in COPD, these medications have been demonstrated to be useful. So it really highlights the importance of trying to identify uh, these two different groups. And of course, key to that is doing spirometry. And spirometry is something that since the pandemic has become much more difficult. And many practices seem to have lost access to it altogether. Maybe this is one service that we don't want to lose. Okay, that's it for the medicine today. Thanks so much for joining us once again on the Hot Topics podcast. Great to have you along for the ride. Who on earth knows what the next three weeks will serve up for us? 
Don't forget to check out the website for our upcoming webinars and our on-demand offerings. Please do join me for that free Hot Topics Clinic on the evening of the 11th of October where we'll be covering inflammatory bowel disease. And oh yeah, don't forget to have some fun as well. Go and enjoy yourself. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye.